this morning. If you would take a minute and fill out your connection card, we would love for you to do that. Um, if you are new and you fill that out and drop it in the offering at the end of the service, we will donate a pair of chocks, uh, chocks, chocks, chalk it up, chalk it up to socks at Northwest Children's Outreach. And um, I did not intend to say chocks, just saying. Um, and you can help us as a church do justice and in our community serving, reaching local kids. We, we want to be a church of disciples who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly. And that's our aim. That's our, our mission, our vision of a church full of disciples making disciple makers and disciples who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That comes from Micah 6.8, the name of our church. So, um, anyone know what today is? Super Bowl Sunday, yeah. We, uh, I was trying to explain Groundhog Day to Henry earlier this week, but um, just want to do a little, a little quick poll. Um, who's rooting for the Seahawks? All right, who's rooting for the Broncos? Good job. I'm, I'm proud of you guys. You were bold enough to, to express your, your desire for the, the, the team who's playing the team that this lives in this state and uh, all the persecution you might face afterwards. Um, I myself am a Cincinnati Bengals fan, so um, so we we haven't rooted we haven't rooted for anybody in the Super Bowl for a very long time. Maybe next year. But uh, this morning we're continuing on in our series, um, Love Illuminated, and we're going through the book of John. We're, going to, we're spending some time in, in John to kind of discover um, more about Jesus and, and who Jesus was and how he lived and what he did so that we can model our lives after him and uh, be more concerned with Jesus and following Jesus than we are with, with other things. This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 2 and, uh, and the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. And uh, before we do that, I want to ask a question. Does anyone like coffee? Yeah? I happen to like coffee. Um, I would not say I love coffee. Someone, did someone up here said they love coffee? Yes. I, I, res, I reserve the word love for things like family, and, and my, I'm just picking on you. But um, <laughs> no, sometimes I say I love coffee. But um, somebody... Uh, <laughs> Somebody donated a Keurig or put a Keurig in the office, so we've been able to have some coffee. We have a Keurig at home, got it for Father's Day a couple years ago. And I have, I've been on this constant quest with the Keurig to figure out how to get the absolute best-tasting cup of coffee possible. Um, it, it already tastes a lot better, you know, than, than what I was used to brewing in, in the pot. And I was, at the time, the only one who drank coffee in our house, but now my wife is starting to drink coffee, so now I could actually go back to brewing a pot of coffee. But... Um, I'm always trying to figure out how to get how to get the most the most flavor and the largest amount of that flavor in a cup of coffee to bring with me to work. Now I don't know if I'm the only one who experiences this, but but you know you want to get that you want to get the the rich flavor where you can taste the roast of the coffee, and you want to have enough to get you to work and through a little bit of time at work so that so that you can get going in the morning and then and then you have. 
have enough to, to go and then make that other cup of coffee. Otherwise, you get to, get to work, you don't have enough energy because you didn't have enough coffee because you're too tired, and so you can't go make that cup of coffee, so you sit at your desk and hate life. <laughs> but... Um, so, so this was a cup that was given to me as a Christmas present this year from uh, one of Becky's family members. And, you know, it's a nice-looking cup. It's, you know, it's pretty, pretty sleek and, and modern-looking, you know. It's, it's a great mug. Um, and so I, w- I, w- I was using this one day to make coffee in here. And, um, well, there's a whole story behind it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be telling you. But um, what I've discovered about the Keurig is that it, it makes the best, the best tasting I'm really passionate about this, so forgive me if I get a little bit worked up. The best tasting coffee when you use eight ounces of water or less. So, so if you have a Keurig at home and you use the upper, the upper setting for the larger cup, then you're, you're, you're a weak coffee drinker. Then you probably should not be calling yourself a coffee drinker. But if you, if you use eight ounces or less and you really like the taste of the coffee, then, then we can talk and we can have a good conversation about coffee. But if you don't like coffee, you can just pretend like uh, I'm talking about Mountain Dew or whatever it is you like to drink. But... So it's eight ounces. This is a 16-ounce mug. It's eight ounces or less makes the best-tasting cup of coffee, which means you have to use two pods of coffee to, to get a full cup, right, to get a full, a good-tasting brewed cup of coffee. Now, um, this, this is supposed to be a 16-ounce mug. It's supposed to be a 16-ounce mug. And um, so I was, I was brewing. If you, if you can't do math, 8 plus 8 is 16, and I use the word supposed to be. Um, it's supposed to be a 16-ounce mug, and um, you, I know that it doesn't hold 16 ounces now. <laughs> so somebody, somebody brought the Keurig into the office and, um, and they put it on this, on this table. You can go in there, you can see it in there. So it's a, a great thing for us to have, except that I drink way too much coffee now. But um, we, we have, this, we have this, uh, this hazelnut coffee that was given to the church. We've been drinking it. And one day, you know, I, was, I was in the afternoon, I was by myself in the office, and I just was kind of dragging a little bit and wanted to make some coffee. So, so I go in, I make, I make one, one cup, and I look in the, in the cup, and I see it's about half full. I can't really tell because there's no line that I can see to, to tell me whether it's half full or not. And, and so I figure I, I can probably fit another, another eight ounces of coffee in here, and so so I put it in, and um, you know I figure well the cup kind of tapers out at the top, you know you can kind of see that, so there's got to be more space in the top half of the cup than there is in the bottom half of the cup, and so I you know I I put the pot in there, I, I brew the coffee, and it's filling up uh, faster than I had anticipated, but I, but I know it kind of starts off fast and slows down, so I think I'm going to be okay, and um, I did discover that this this is this cup can hold. 16 ounces of coffee, except for it to hold 16 ounces of coffee, it has to be beaded up over the top by about an eighth of an inch. And so, um, yeah, it was a pretty cool little science experiment, except the fact that I didn't have any way to get rid of the extra coffee. So I'm going around the office looking for napkins, and uh, we use this table to hold some of our lunch stuff, and so in one of the drawers, there's, there's ketchup and straws, and that was the first drawer that I looked in. I said, like, well, that's not really what I'm looking for, and I looked in the middle drawer, and you know, I'm just kind of going through the drawers trying to find a napkin, because I figure if I get a napkin, I can soak up enough of the coffee off of the top that I can get the lid on, and I'll be golden. 
And um, I go in the, in the second drawer, and what's in there is boxes of, of K-cups. And so I figure, well, it's got to be in the third drawer, which is right under the Keurig. And uh, somebody had cleaned out the second drawer to put the boxes of K-cups and put all that stuff into the first drawer. And I don't know what happens if, I don't know if you know what happens when you put too much stuff in one drawer, but a lot of times when you put too much stuff in one drawer that you close it, you can't get it open again. And so I went to open the drawer with the same amount of force that I had used on the other two drawers, and the drawer only came out halfway. And, but I had used a full opening's worth of force. And, and my brute strength, um, when I went and the, and the drawer opened and stopped halfway, um, that res- the, the leftover force went then into the rest of the table and the Keurig, and um, still could not open the drawer all of the way, and there was no longer coffee sitting on top of my cup because it had uh, went all over me and the table and the floor, and I still needed the napkins and could not get into the drawer <laughs> where the napkins were. So, um, but the cup, the, the point is the cup was full. The cup was so full that, that it was overflowing and, and that it was so full that, that when you moved it, when you touched it, it was full enough that it overflowed. We're going to look at, at John chapter 2 and Jesus turning the water into wine. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to go there with me. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen for you. My version is just a little bit different than yours. I apologize for that. One of these days we'll get the right version in there, but... I didn't type it in, so that's all on me. John chapter 2, Jesus changes the water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from ten or from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So they filled them to the brim. Verse 8 Then then he told them, Now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith with him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for for the work that you have done throughout history, for, for the stories we get to read about the miracles and the signs that you did in this book of John that we're going through. Father, I pray that as we learn from you, as we hear from you, as we study from you, that, that our hearts and our minds would be open to what you want to teach us, what you want to say to us, and how you want us to live our lives as a result of hearing from you this morning. Father, fill, fill this place with your words, fill my mouth with your words, and, and help all of us to hear what you want us to hear, not to get caught up on things that I say or words that I stumble over, but to hear from you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you've been around church very much, you've heard about this, this miracle. It's a pretty popular miracle. It's the only place it's mentioned is in, in the book of John and, and, and John's account of Jesus' life. And um, I, it, it kind of triggered some, some questions, some ideas in me when, when I started thinking about, so why, why did John include it but not the others? What was so important about this, this sign, this wonder, this thing that Jesus did that John had to include it? In fact, it's the very first sign that John included in his retelling of, of the gospel, and, and it's not in any other of the three gospels that we read. And so um, it kind of got me wondering, got me thinking about why, why John would include this. Now, First, of course, it's, it's miraculous. It's cool that Jesus could, could take some water and turn it into wine. And, and um, yes, I do think it was wine. I do not think it was grape juice. I do not think it was uh, some kind of wine that doesn't uh, get you intoxicated. I think he just turned water into wine, and that was a, a joyous thing for their time, and um, people wouldn't have had a problem with it. So uh, I, don't, I don't feel the need to rationalize that Jesus turned the water into wine. Um, I think it was just wine. And um, if you have a problem with that, you can uh, take it up with Jesus. So, um, so I do think it was, it was wine, but, but I think we, kinda, we look at the miracles and we look at the things that Jesus did, and, and we don't always look for what they mean or what they, what they represent. Now, this is a sign. I, I'm not 100% you know, uh, assured of this globally throughout, throughout all of Jesus' miracles and signs, but this, this John classifies as a sign as opposed to just a miracle. And so I think the fact that it's a sign means that, that there's something we're supposed to learn out of what Jesus did, that there's something that more than just the, the actual miracle that he performed that we're supposed to observe. I think there's, there's a lot more to it than that. And so I've really been digging into this for, for quite some time. I've been excited to preach this message, so I hope you, uh, you've come with me. And if not, the Super Bowl is this afternoon. You can just think about that. So let's go back to the beginning of this passage and kind of work our way through it and talk our way through some of the stuff that comes up here. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan and Galilee. There's a lot of uh, speculation as to why the third day uh, phrase is in there, whether it's the third day of the week or was it, you know, it's, the, it's the third day of the wedding or uh, just exactly when that was. I don't think it's all that important, um, except that... That's the day that this took place on. And Jesus' mother was there at this wedding. Jesus was obviously with his mother at the wedding. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And then when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is important because in the Old Testament or in in Bible times when when we're going through this, a wedding was usually a week-long feast. It was a week-long celebration. It wasn't just like we get together uh, today and just just kind of get it over with and get through and then get to the party and then a couple hours later everyone is drunk and so we go home. Um, that's, that's not what they, were, what they were used to celebrating at the time. You know, um, my wife and I have taken a lot of wedding pictures over the years. We've done some wedding photography and, and we have been at, at weddings where the ceremony lasted like three minutes and, and then they just want to get to the party and then everyone gets to the party and then a couple hours later everyone has had too much to drink like the Bible says and, um, and it's time to go home. But in this time, a wedding feast would last 
for a week. It would last at least several days. It would be a grand celebration, and, and a lot of people would come from, from far and wide to come and celebrate with the couple who was getting married and the families that were coming together. And so, so they would spend all this time, and to run out of wine at the very beginning of the celebration was a disgrace. You would, you would be disgraced in the community. You would be gossiped about and talked about and talked down to and talked down of because you ran out of wine early on. So it's not like this was a small problem for these people. Oh, they just ran out of wine. They just ran out of money. They couldn't bring any more wine. Um, and so it's no big deal. That's what we would think now. But, but in this time, uh, this would have been but a, a pretty big deal. Verse 4, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love how, um, at least in John's account of it, uh, Mary doesn't really even listen to Jesus because he's her son. It's like, why, why are you bothering me, woman? My time has not yet come. And he looks over to this and says, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> she doesn't even acknowledge what he just said. It's like she's been a mother for a while or something. I don't know. <laughs> Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. We're going to spend some time here. I do want to point out, though, that, that um, a, a good phrase to use in following Jesus is that phrase that Mary said when she looked to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. If, if Jesus' mother says to you, do whatever he tells you, it's probably, probably good enough advice to listen to for us. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I'm not going to put the scripture up, but in, in Leviticus, this is part of the, part of the, the bigger law that, that, uh, that God gave to Moses. And the Jews were supposed to wash their hands before they ate. And, um, and it was part of a ceremonial cleansing so that when they eat, they would be clean when they eat, and if they didn't do that, then they had to go and, and wash their whole body, and they would be unclean until later in that evening, and then they had to remain perfectly clean for an entire week after that because if they broke the, the law of washing your hands or you know the, the ceremonial cleansing before you come to eat. But sitting outside this building probably would have been six stone water jars. Now, that would be, I was going to bring in a, a, a wine barrel that we have at home. It's just, it's a barrel that we didn't put have that much wine. We just bought it at an antique store before you judge us. And it's, but it's about this, you know, this tall and, you know, maybe this wide, and it would probably hold about 30 gallons of wine. And so outside there were sitting how many of those? Six. So, so there's enough basically to come all the way across the front of the stage here would be six stone water jars. And, and before they would come into the building, they would, they would ceremonially outside wash their hands in these water jars, and then they would go in and they would be clean enough to eat. Now, if it wasn't important, then it wouldn't be here. If it wasn't important, we wouldn't have had that, that little description about the fact that there are six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So I want you to think about those jars as we, as we go on. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Just like the coffee cup I was talking about early, they filled them as full as they could. They filled them to the brim. Now, now you know what happens when you fill something to the brim. It's, you can't add to it. You can't put something else in it. You can't add you know, ingredients to it. If it's full to the brim, it's not like Jesus would come along and drop some things in there and do some magic, and it all of a sudden becomes wine. They are full 
to the brim. And so something happens that Jesus does, but between when they're in the jar and by the time that the master of ceremonies, the person controlling the party of, of the wedding feast, and something happens between that time, we don't know exactly when it was, but it turns from water into wine. That's pretty cool. It would probably be a pretty cool uh, miracle that lots of people would like to have done today. But we're not doing that today. Um, we would have done that last week when we, when we had the baptism out there full of water. But uh, that was last week, so sorry we missed that opportunity. Um, but he told them, that was a joke, by the way, we're not actually going to try to turn any water into wine. <laughs> I just want you to know. Um, and now he, that he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants, the person who brought them the wine, knew exactly where it came from. The servants who had drawn the water knew, and then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then once everybody gets drunk and they can't taste anything anymore, the, they bring out the cheaper wine, and, and, but you have saved the best until now. Everyone brings out the choice wine first the, the, when, before everyone has had too much to drink, before they've lost you know, uh, several points off of their IQ, when they can actually enjoy the wine and they can, they can put it in their mouth and they can taste the flavor of the wine and all the, you know, the intricacies of the flavors of wine. And if you know anything about wine, you know that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of different kinds of flavors and, and things that you're supposed to look for when you're, when you're drinking wine. Um, but, but once you get drunk, you don't really care about that anymore. You just want to continue drinking wine to, to stay drunk. So it stood out to the master of ceremonies, the MC, the person who was the master of the banquet. It stood out to him that, that normally you'd bring out the good wine but, and then bring out the poorer wine later, but you've saved the best until now. So it's not only that Jesus makes wine, but he makes the best wine. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. That's important, I think. Um, and he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now let's go back to those, those jars, the, ceremonial, the jars for ceremonial cleansing. First, if you remember back to several weeks ago when we first started this series, we were in the, in the first chapter, there's, there's the phrase that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, when he came down to the earth, when he came and walked among us, John felt it necessary to put in that, that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. So I think it's, it's not a stretch for us to think that, that as we look at those jars that were full to the brim, they could easily represent Jesus and the fact that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. That doesn't seem like a big stretch to me. Maybe it is to you, but we're going to continue on from that point. I'm not going to spend a lot on that. But I think the fact that these, these jars were used for ceremonial washing is very important to the story. I think it's very important that we recognize that, that this thing that represented part of the law, part of the, the Old Testament law that these people were used to following, used to living under and living under even the oppression of, was something that Jesus then turned and used to represent something else entirely. I think he goes from, from looking at, at the law and the Old Testament law, and he, and he turns it into something that represents who he was, who he was, which is full of grace and truth. See, just as this wedding ran out of wine, humankind had run out of fellowship with God. 
And when Jesus came, when Jesus came into the world, there, there had been a void of fellowship. There had been a void of connection with God. When sin entered the world, then the, the celebration that was originally there when God created Adam and Eve had ceased. But Jesus came to restore our reason to celebrate. From the time after Adam and Eve had fallen until Jesus came, there was just a continue downward, a downward trend, a downward slide uh, to, to distance from God until we get to the point where it's all about rules and regulations. But Jesus came and restored our reason to celebrate. And we even see throughout, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, in several, several places, at least a couple that I can think of, that wine is used as a positive thing. It's a, it's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of, of, a, of a celebration. Psalm 104.15 says, Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. You can hear in that passage that wine is something that gladdens the heart of man. It's, it's something about joy. So when we hear about joy in this passage, when we hear about wine, we are hearing about the joy that Jesus brings. But the wedding had run out of wine, and just as the world had run out of fellowship with God, for, for the past several thousand years, humanity had been trying to earn their way back into fellowship with God and had failed miserably. For the past several thousand years, mankind had been trying, the Israelites, the people of Israel, had been trying to earn their way back into fellowship with God, but it failed miserably. And so Jesus takes this thing, this jar that, that represents the law that they were living under. They, they, he takes this thing that represents the righteousness that they'd been trying to, to attain, this, this thing that represents the old law, and he fills it with something entirely different. You see, in, in, a, in a sense, these jars can, can easily be... Uh, can represent the righteousness of the Jewish people, that they were a part of Old Testament laws, but had become something, um, something so convoluted. They had become something that, that was so far from what God had, had originally intended for them to become. They had become this other thing that wasn't about what God originally put in place, something that was for the, for the Israelites' good and something for their benefit. In fact, they had become, the, the laws themselves had become such a big deal that, that when Jesus and his disciples later in, in Jesus' ministry are walking through a field, they call out Jesus on the fact that they didn't observe this law. This is in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Matthew 15, verse 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Before they eat, you know, perhaps they were they were walking through a field, and there was they were walking through a field of, of barley, and they were just pulling a few heads off of off of the plants and eating them as they were walking through. And, and some of the Pharisees had observed them doing this. You know, I'm not exactly sure what transpired there, but but something happened, and the Pharisees called them on it and said, "You're breaking the law." You're breaking the law. You're breaking the law that, that our elders passed on to us, the, the tradition that we've had for, for years and years. You're not washing your hands before you eat. Now, we obviously have different reasons for washing our hands before we eat. We know that um, if you don't wash your hands, then you have a good chance of putting a lot of really gross things in your mouth. And so we realize that there are some healthy things, but we don't do it because it's a religious act. We don't do it. Some of you do it religiously. We don't do it because it's a religious act. We do it because it's wise. But the keeping of the law had become more important than worshiping God, and that's an important thing to note as we transition from thinking in an Old Testament way to thinking in a New Testament way. 
the Old Testament law, following the Old Testament law, following the rules and the regulations that have been put in place for, for, for thousands of years had become more important than worshiping God. It had become more important than fellowshipping with God. It had become so important that when the Messiah was walking among them, they could not recognize him because they were so focused on their law. In fact, the disciples probably didn't really understand everything that was transpiring at this point in time. But I bet they understood later, after Jesus had been crucified, after he had been risen from the dead, and as they thought back on that night before Jesus was betrayed, the night that we celebrated last week, and they thought about the symbol of the wine, I bet they remembered this is a new covenant. This is a new righteousness. This is a new way of living. And that's what this cup of wine represents. Is what this cup that we celebrated last week represents. It was his blood poured out for us. And I wonder if any of them, as they got past that point, they could, they could look back at the wedding at Cana, the wedding in, in Cana in Galilee, and just remember that Jesus came as the bridegroom to a bride. And at, the, at the, the very first thing that Jesus did was he turned the water into wine and showed us the new covenant that he would be pouring out for us. See, the old covenant was one that depended on man's ability to do what was right. The old covenant depended on man's ability to be righteous on his own. And when he fell short, he would have to offer some kind of sacrifice. He would have to do some kind of thing, some kind of ritual to pay for his shortcomings. He would have to do something to pay for all of the mistakes that he made. But Jesus came, and when Jesus came, he, he changed all that and he flopped it all on his head. It's, not, it's no longer that we have to do a certain set of things in order to attain righteousness, to, atta- to attain salvation and grace. We receive grace because Jesus is grace, and he poured his grace out on our lives. And from that point on, then we go on and live out and work out our salvation. So what do you think Jesus might have been communicating through this sign, through this sign that he did at Cana in Galilee? First, I think, like I've already mentioned, that, that he's saying he was full of grace and truth and that, that he would fulfill us with his grace and truth in the same way. I think he's, he's saying, this, this is just like me. I'm coming from the Father full of grace and truth, and, and I am going to provide a grace and truth for you that is, that is different than anything you've ever experienced. The second thing I think is communicating comes, we find in Matthew 5.17, and it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus would have been preaching this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, something we are familiar with, we've talked about a couple times, at, at a very similar time, very close in time, very close in location to where he was at this wedding. It's in a different, a different uh, telling of the gospel, but it would have happened in the same area at the very same close uh, uh, proximity of time. And he said that, and he said this in a sermon, Matthew 5, 17. The ceremonial washing of hands, wait, uh, that's the wrong verse. Do we have Matthew 5, 17 back there somewhere? I'll read it for you here. Matthew 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
So I think, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure on the timing of all of this, but, but I think that there's a very good chance that, that Jesus followers, his disciples who had been following him, who, who had heard about him, who would have been at the wedding or at least would have heard about the miracle at this point, would be able to then take that, that, that picture that he put of, of filling up these ceremonial washing jars and filling them up with wine. And then when he comes and says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. I think Jesus is, is giving us a picture that, that he has fulfilled the Old Testament law. He's fulfilled all of the Old Testament law that, that, that was before him, and, and he's fulfilled it all, and now we're moving into a new covenant, a new way of living. See, the ceremonial washing of hands for which these jars had always been used was put aside and replaced with something new. The Lamb came to fulfill the Mosaic law and exchange it for a higher law, the law of grace. And he would fulfill ceremonial cleansing with complete spiritual and eternal cleansing of his own blood on the cross. He would fulfill any need there was up until that point to have some kind of ceremonial cleansing by the blood and the sacrifice that he poured out on the cross. The work that he did on the cross would cover over everything that we could possibly need to do to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So I think when we, see, when we see Jesus taking something that was used that represented the Old Testament law, not only did, did it represent him being full of grace of truth, not only did it represent him coming and fulfilling all of the Old Testament law and the prophets, I think it represents a new way of looking at the world, a new way of looking at, at the righteousness that Jesus offers to us. It is full. It is full of grace. And just as the cup of the new covenant, which represents Jesus' blood, represents Jesus' grace that he covers us in and the righteousness that he covers us in, I think we can easily take the same application to the wine at the, at the wedding feast and say, you are full of grace. Not because you washed your hands in this jar, but because I'm full of grace. And I want to give my grace to you. I think another thing that we can notice from this passage is that, that the giving of grace isn't because grace is deserved. The giving of grace is not because grace is deserved. We don't deserve the grace that we receive. We don't earn the grace that we receive. God gives it to us freely of his own accord, of his own choosing. He chooses to give us the grace. And I think we can see that because neither the groom or his family had done anything to Jesus or for Jesus that would cause him to need to repay that favor. Perhaps they had done some kind of favor. We don't see that in the, in the Bible, but, but neither the groom or his family had done anything to earn this gift from Jesus, but Jesus did it anyway. He just gave them gallons and gallons and gallons of wine so they would not be embarrassed in their community. They didn't deserve it, but Jesus gave it anyway. He's putting in a new covenant of grace. Okay, so maybe it's not all about wine. Maybe it's not all about Jesus turning water into wine and the cool miracle, all that, but, but what's the point? I, uh, there's probably a lot, of, a lot of things we could pull out of this, but here's the thing I hope that you hear from me this morning. You, I hope you hear from this passage is that our own ability to live righteous lives will never surpass the righteousness of Jesus' grace in us. That's a long statement, but I, I hope you get that. I hope you hear that. Write it down if, if you can. Our own ability to live righteous lives will never surpass the righteousness of Jesus' grace in us. Our own ability to live righteous lives will never surpass 
the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. So we should stop trying to earn his grace. We should stop trying to live our lives in such a way that we can finally get the grace that we deserve. Because we will never, ever deserve it. We will never get to a place in our lives, we'll never get to a point in our lives where we've finally done enough good to get God's grace. And as long as our motivation and the way that we live, as long as our motivation and the, kind of, and the paths that we are leading as followers of Jesus Christ is to earn his grace, we can never really experience God's grace. As long as all of our motivation and all of our time and everything that we do as followers of Jesus Christ is so that we can try to finally get to a point where we can look at God and say, I'm worthy, we don't really understand grace. Grace is not looking at the cross and saying, I have finally earned this sacrifice. Grace is looking at the cross and saying, your grace has covered all of my sins. Grace is looking at the cross and saying, everything that wrong that I have done, you cover. Every attempt at my own righteousness that has come up short, you cover that too. Don't miss that. All of my attempts at righteousness that come up short, Jesus covers those too. I want to read one more passage for you out of Isaiah chapter 64. Verses 4 through 6. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like ones, one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. All of us have become like the one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Jesus' grace does not just cover over the multitude of sins that we that we do throughout the course of our life. Jesus' grace covers over the filthy rags of our righteous acts. Instead of trying to earn our salvation, I think we're supposed to be so amazed by our salvation that we go out and walk in that salvation. And the New Testament is called working out your salvation. Let us, let us work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. It's, it's it's such an amazing thing that, that we have been given, this grace that we have received, this grace that has been poured out on our lives. It's, it's such an amazing gift. We have not done anything to deserve it. We do not deserve the grace of Jesus Christ, but he pours it out over us. Instead of earning our salvation, we should go out and walk out and work out our salvation. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3, 15 through 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, whether you're, whether you're saying something or whether you're doing something, whether you're attempting to be righteous or whether you're attempting to, to live out your salvation, whatever it is, your motivation should be to glorify God. 
Your motivation should be to worship God. Your motivation should be to give God all of the glory and all of the praise that he deserves because he deserves so much from us because of his grace. So we aren't motivated to live perfect lives because we need to earn salvation. We are motivated to live lives that honor Jesus Christ because we have received salvation. We're not motivated by the things that we do. We're motivated by the thing that Jesus did. Our own ability to live righteous lives will never surpass the righteousness of Jesus' grace in us. Our own ability to live righteous lives, that whatever we can do in our own power, will never surpass the righteousness of Jesus' grace in us. So as we go from this place this morning, as we kind of take a turn into some of, the, some of the other stories and some of the other things that Jesus did, I hope that we can really get a firm understanding, a firm foundation of grace. I don't know if any of you ever watch OPB. I don't watch it all that often, but um, there was this show, and I grew up in Ohio, so I was a little bit intrigued by it, um, and it was playing, uh, or well, I was playing the recording of it last night. It's about Amish. It's called The, America, the American Experience and it's the Amish. And we had, we had some Amish who lived in Ohio, and there's obviously a lot of Amish who live in Pennsylvania. But they were talking, and they were explaining a lot of the motivation about, about what motivates the Amish to live the kind of lifestyle that they live. And it's all, it's all about church. It's all about religion. It's all about trying to earn their salvation. And, and there was a lady who spoke as, as a part of the series when she was talking about what motivates them is that, is that we live these lives, we live in such a way, you know, we, we are pastors through, we don't, we don't call this place our home, we know that we are just visitors, we, we know that we are just on our way to somewhere, somewhere else, and we hope that if we do enough of the right things, that maybe we will have earned his salvation. And Becky pointed out all of that and they don't get it. All of that and they don't get it. They, they go to such an extreme, they go to such an extreme way of living, such an extreme way of doing life and it's, and it's also that they hope they will have earned their salvation. It's so that maybe they will have done enough to be pleasing in God's eyes. And if we can fix any one thing about, about church, if we can fix any one thing about, about where we are right now and kind of in church history and this, this place that we've gotten to, I think this is the one thing we have to fix. If we can spend our lives fixing this one thing, I think God can do amazing things through our lives. Because now thousands of years later, we have kind of really come back full circle to, to a righteousness that is based on our Acts. We've come back to a righteousness is based on, on what we do, and if we can do the right things, then we can earn our way to God. And that, that's not necessarily the message that is preached, but that is the message that is taught by lifestyle. That is the message that is taught by what is expected of people and churches across America. But if we can get back to this simple understanding, it's, it's easy to understand, it's hard to live out, but we can get back to this simple understanding that it's all about grace, it's all about Jesus' grace poured on our lives, it's all about the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, it's all about the fact that he is such an amazing Savior, he's such an amazing God, he is worthy of all of our life's praise, he is worthy of all of our life's ambition, he is worthy of everything that we could possibly think of or imagine or do, that he is worthy of even more than that, and that our, our motivation and our desire is thankfulness and worship and gratitude 
gratitude because of the gift that he has given, if we can take a turn from trying to earn all of the grace and we can turn into living out the grace, I think God can do an amazing thing. So I want to ask you this morning, have you been trying to earn grace? Or have you been trying to live out grace? Have you been trying to earn grace? Or have you been trying to live out grace? As you think over your life, over even just the past week, were you trying to earn grace? Were you trying to do the good things so that you could get grace? Or were you trying to live out grace? Were you trying to do enough good so that you could get grace? Or were you so motivated by the grace of God that you couldn't do enough good? I think when we really get how amazing grace is, we won't stop at our attempts at doing good for Jesus Christ. And as we work off the old man and and work into the new man and the new us that is being created every day as we move closer and closer to Jesus Christ, we will continue to shake off more and more of the ways of the past and be molded into more and more of his likeness. And every day as we pursue him, we become more like him. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we go from this place this morning, that we will, we will maybe finally take a turn from, from this, this innate need that we all have to try to earn righteousness And that we'll finally start living worshipful, worship-filled lives in response to your righteousness. That we will look at the work that you did on the cross. We will look at the sacrifice that you paid in our place so that we would not have to die for our own sins. But you paid that price in our place. And we would look at that and we would be so overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude that we cannot help but surrender our lives and praise and worship to you. That we would never let that message go away from us. That we would never let that message become a secondary thing in our thinking. That we would never let that message of the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ. That we would never let that be buried under righteousness and our own attempts to earn salvation. But that that would always stay at the forefront. That would always stay at the top. That would always stay in the center and in the focus of what drives us and motivates us and pushes us to be who you want us to be. That, That we would never let that message be silenced. But that we would that we would allow you to dwell richly in our lives, that we would allow that message to dwell richly in our hearts and that you would use that message then to teach and admonish us in your love, that you would use that message to to come alongside each and every one of us and, and to push us forward in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that as we go after Jesus, as we go after his grace, that we'd be filled with wisdom, we'd be filled with worship, and that through our times of worship together, we will bring glory to God through the psalms and the hymns and the songs of the spirit, the spiritual songs that we're singing with gratitude in our hearts, we would worship you. Father, I pray that our response in this time, in this moment, that, that it would be a response of worship and thankfulness for the grace that you have poured out on us, that, that whatever we do in these next few moments that we have together, whatever we, whatever we say, whatever we sing, however we respond to this act that you've given us of your grace and your kindness and your mercy, whatever we do, that it would be done in, in your name, that it would be done for your glory, that it would be done for, for giving you the praise that you deserve. 
that it wouldn't be done to draw attention to ourselves, it wouldn't be done because we're trying to impress you, but that we're doing it because of grace. So whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, in his name we give thanks, and in his name we worship, and we say, amen.